First Thessalonians 4, 6, that no man go beyond and defraud his brother in any matter because the Lord, because that the Lord is the avenger of all such as we also have forewarned you and testified. Father God, in Jesus name, please take this word that is your word, your holy word, your inspired word, your infallible word, your preserved word in English, Father, and take it and use it in our lives and help us to adhere to it, to learn from it, to be reproved, to be edified, to be exhorted, Lord, thoroughly furnished unto every good work. We pray this in Jesus' name. We ask you for this, and we bless your holy name in Jesus' name. And Lord, I also ask you to just give me the anointing, Lord, without which I cannot do anything. The anointing to preach, Father, beyond the anointing that you've given me as a believer, Father, to understand your word, I need an anointing to communicate your word. And I ask you for that in Jesus' name and for Christ's sake, that you would be glorified through this message. Amen. Welcome back to Bible time. In 1 Thessalonians 4, 6, uh, we are plowing through some of the pr- practical reasons that Paul had given to the church at Thessalonica to that they needed discipleship, that they needed his guidance. And this was one of the reasons that he wanted to get there. And in chapter 3, verse 10, had said, Night and day praying exceedingly that we might see your face and might perfect that which is lacking in your faith. <coughs> Now, God himself and our Father and our Lord Jesus Christ direct our way unto you, and the Lord make you to increase and abound in love one toward another and toward all men, even as we do toward you. To the end, he may establish your hearts unblameable in holiness before God, even our Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all his saints. Now, the church at Thessalonica had been a quick startup, as we've observed, um, and they were in samples to all them in Macedonia and Achaia. For from you, chapter 1, verse 8, sound out the word of the Lord, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place, your faith to Godward is spread abroad so that we need not to speak anything. Now, if this church had so much faith, why would he be talking to this church about things like chapter four, verse three? This is the will of God, even your sanctification, that ye should abstain from fornication. Well, the reason for that is found in the carnality of our fleshly body and the fact that while you can be very spiritual in your spirit, you can be very unspiritual and in fact are very unspiritual in your natural man. The Bible says the natural man cannot please God. They that are in the flesh cannot please God and that the flesh wore against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. These two are the contrary one to another so that you cannot do that which you would. And it is an irony that the more spiritual a man gets in some areas, often the more fleshly he gets in other areas and the more in danger he gets in other areas, which is one of the reasons God has set the members of the body in their places, everyone in particular, because we need one another. We need to take care of each other. We need to back up one another. We need to watch out for one another. And so here, as he's warning about sin of fornication and warning that they need to know how to possess their vessel in sanctification and honor, every man needs to possess his vessel in sanctification and honor, not in the lust of concupiscence, even as the Gentiles, which know not God. He comes to this verse that we look at today, that no man go beyond and defraud his brother in any matter, because that the Lord is the avenger of all such, as we also have forewarned you and testified. And I would, I'd venture to say that from within the the walls of a New Testament church that's on fire and serving God. Notice I qualified that carefully. Not anything that's called a church has this great danger, but from within the walls of any church that is on fire for God, serving God, seeking to do something for God, there is the greatest danger that they face is that of defraudment. 
may have made up a new word there. I don't know. <clears throat> but this idea of defrauding a brother, if you, the, the, this will do more to undermine and destroy the work of God in a church than possibly any other influence. Whereas the devil himself was not able to bring down the church at Thessalonica and persecution had only swollen its ranks and made it stronger until their faith was commended throughout all Macedonia and Achaia. Paul is here warning them that there's something that lacks in their faith and and that is the faith of, of living one with another. The faith of knowing how to love your brother more than yourself. And that there was a great danger that in the midst of their great faith, they might have a great fall. Paul himself had, had said but in another place, I bring under my body and keep it in subjection, lest by any means when I have preached to others, I myself should be cast away. And this concept of preaching the gospel to others and standing for the word of God and holding forth the form of sound words which ye have heard of us, and the carrying forward of the doctrine of the apostles and then tripping and falling and blowing out and messing up and bringing great reproach to the word of God is not a new concept. Sometimes we think, oh, that just happens to preachers in America. No, that happens to preachers everywhere. And it happens to preachers from all time since the church was birthed on the day of Pentecost there in Jerusalem. This has been a problem and will continue to be a problem and a very real possibility. You say, how can this be true? How can a real God called man of God fall? Well, the problem is he's a real called man of God. And that man is just as real as the of God part of it. And the fact that he's a man makes him just as vulnerable as any other man. The of God part is his only hope. But if that man is exercising his office and begins in the heat of the battle and in the difficulties and in the time spent and all of the busyness and the exhaustion and the pressures and he begins to grow carnal in the way he's handling situations he's a ticking time bomb because he is a man and his flesh is still flesh and his flesh can still be inflamed one preacher preacher that's highly esteemed in the southern states of the United States of America, especially near the turn of the last century, around the 1910s and 20s, this man was extremely um, looked, looked to in the, well, actually it was much later than that that he really gained notoriety as a preacher. It was in the 40s, 50s, 60s, on into the 70s, and finally died in the 80s. And this preacher, it, he told the story that one day while he was traveling preaching as a middle-aged preacher man, and he had remained single to serve the Lord Jesus Christ <coughs> with all of his energies. This man was in a hotel room and he was praying and preparing for the next message and the devil was tempting him and the temptation was so sore. The temptation was so thick. The battle was so great that he literally gave up. Most men that know this man's name would not even know this man's name if God had not prevented him from falling that day. In the middle of the night, he gave up and he purposed to go down to the bar and get drunk. And he got up off of his knees and he stepped to the door and there was a little piece of paper that had just been slid under the door as he was getting up and going over. And he picked up the paper and read it. And it said something to the effect of preacher, don't do it. I'm praying for you. 
And he jerked the door open and looked up and down the hall and the person had already left the hallway and he didn't know till later that it was a woman in the church that had been awakened in the middle of the night and God had told her, pray for the preacher. And she rolled out of bed and hit the floor and started praying and a burden and an agony and great fear came over her for the preacher and she wept before God and cried out to God and God had burdened her, write a note and take it to his hotel and slip it under the door and she did that in the middle of the night and slipped that under his door and fled from the area and he didn't know till later the rest of that story but when he picked up that note he started weeping and he shut his door and he hit his knees again and he got his bible got back out and he started fighting the devil again and God preserved him and held him through that great temptation and if I told I don't even want to mention that man's name because um, for other reasons but he's he was used by God mightily those of you that know his story know who I'm talking about those of you that don't just suffice it to say that this man nearly fell and the this man was held in high veneration this man was known as one of the purest of the pure one of the hardest preaching one of the straightest living one of the greatest preachers the south had ever seen and he nearly fell because he was still a man and he still had a flesh so here it says that no man go beyond and defraud his brother in any matter because that the lord is the avenger of all such as we also have for warned you and testified my great uncle was a preacher as the story goes i'm not sure about all the details <coughs> he left the pulpit he left the work of god he went down to the bars my dad remembered in dad's um, infidel days when dad was serving satan with both hands and his whole heart uh, my dad remembers shooting pool at the bar with my uncle listening to rock and roll and country western and shooting pool and drinking um, booze and smoking cigarettes and telling dirty jokes with my great uncle who had left the pulpit. My great uncle did not live more than two years. He didn't make it to his second year and he was found dead in a gutter. The Lord is the avenger of all such as we have forewarned you and testified. For God hath not called us unto uncleanness, it says, but unto holiness. He therefore that despiseth, despiseth not man but God who hath also given unto us his Holy Spirit but as touching brotherly love ye need not that I write unto you for ye yourselves are taught of God to love one another and here he commends again their brotherly love immediately after saying don't defraud the connection is pretty clear defrauding destroys brotherly love we're going to look at that here in the uh, here real quickly he says that no man go beyond and defraud his brother exodus 20 verse 14 says thou shalt not commit adultery exodus 20 verse 17 go to proverbs exodus 20 verse 17 says thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's house thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's wife nor his manservant nor his maidservant nor his ox nor his ass nor anything that is thy neighbor's this coveting here in our text is in context relating directly to 
immorality, to marital infidelity, to cheating on your wife, cheating on your espoused wife, cheating on the one that you are courting, um, flirting with other women, um, women flirting with other men. This kind of stuff is the direct context. He says here um, to possess your vessel in sanctification and honor, to abstain from fornication. So the direct context, while it is physical um, immorality, it says here that no man go beyond and defraud his brother in any matter. So it would also apply to the neighbor's house, the neighbor's manservant, the neighbor's maidservant, his ox, his ass, and anything that is his neighbor as well as his wife. Proverbs 6 and verse 30. (coughs) Pray for my throat. Pray that God would help me to preach. He says here, men do not despise a thief if he steal to satisfy his soul when he is hungry. But if he be found, he shall restore sevenfold. He shall give all the substance of his house. But whoso committeth committeth adultery with a woman lacketh understanding. He that doeth it destroyeth his own soul. A wound and dishonor shall he get, and his reproach shall not be wiped away. This here is warning that though a thief may steal and men may forgive the thief, he says that the man who steals someone's wife will not be forgiven. That man will not be forgiven, it says here, though he bring many gifts. Look at it. Verse 34, for jealousy is the rage of a man, therefore he will not spare in the day of vengeance. He will not regard any ransom neither will he rest content though thou givest many gifts there is one sin in the local church that wrecks that wreaks and causes such a great havoc in the church that there are consequences that reach well beyond that sin and cause it to um, unhinge and derail the work of God in many people's lives for the for many following years and that is defrauding in the area of sexual immorality and impurity. This area is a very serious area. This area is a deadly area. And historically, whenever churches get on fire for God and a movement begins to be useful for the kingdom of heaven, this is the next place the devil goes. If the devil can bring sexual immorality and moral impurity into a move of God, into a work of God, he can unhinge it. He can unhook it from God's power. He can separate it. He can divide and conquer the brethren and the shock waves of it reach out for generations. I could, I'm not even going to do it right now, but I could start naming names and saying names of men who were considered great men who have um, dabbled in impurity and have brought shame to the name of Christ. What a reproach this is. Uh, What a reproach it is to the name of God. Men who have committed adultery from the pulpit with other men's wives and you would know their names. Some of you would know their names. If you're very young, you might not. But their names live on in infamy. Their reproach is not wiped away. It doesn't matter how long they live. It doesn't matter how hard they try to do right after that or how they serve God their name lives on in reproach and in infamy and is despised uh, by men for generations to come. Far from not having a biography written about them, they go far beyond that and instead their name lives on in infamy and they may get special mentions. Uh, One extremely wicked extreme example of this from the dark ages is that wicked man Tetzel who was selling indulgences back in the 1500s who 
came head to head with Martin Luther, and that man was a lewd, immoral person who was nearly put in a sack and thrown in the river by the local judges because of his wicked lewdness and immorality. But because he was stealing so much money for the Pope and for the other archbishops in his area, they managed to get his sentence commuted, and then they got him moved out to go and do penance at Rome and recommissioned him as head indulgence gatherer for Rome, whereupon he went around blaspheming Christ and selling Christ to the multitudes, selling Christ's forgiveness to the multitudes for German, for Italian Florins and German Marks or Franks or whatever it was they were using in those days. <coughs> that man Tetzel was killed by God. And I don't even believe he was saved, but he didn't live very much longer after that. When he continued to blaspheme Christ and to um, rail against the truth and against the word of God, how much more so that was damaging. But in that day, it sparked the fires of reformation. Many people will hold up Martin Luther as a great figure of the reformation. But I submit to you today that Tetzel was every bit as much involved in causing the reformation as Luther. If it wasn't for Tetzel's excesses and lies, and immorality that he'd gotten straight from Rome, by the way, and brought up with him, if it wasn't for Tetzel's extreme lewdness and wickedness and his chicanery and his snake oil salesman and everything that, um, salesmanship and everything that he did, there would not have been the fires of reformation that were sparked through that event that led to the freeing of the European world from the clutches of the Pope and the dissemination of the Bible throughout um, all of Christendom. So we can see Christendom, what a word, throughout all of the um, European areas that name the name of Christ. Suddenly there were Bibles available, whereas before the Catholic Church had not allowed it and would burn you at the stake if you had a Bible. And that's history, whether you like it or not. And it's the same church today. They would do that if they could. And I can evidence that. But moving on from there, <clears throat> moving on from there, the that act those wicked lewdnesses and defraudings by Tetzel as a lost man, as a wolf, are not as destructive to the church as when it happens within. His wicked lewdnesses and destructions caused the church to grow because he was outside of the true church and it exposed the false church. But when that happens within the church, the damage is nearly irretrievable. And you say, wait, with God, all things are possible. Yes, with God, it's possible for you to mortify your members that are upon the earth and put away the fornication and uncleanness that is in you. But there are some things that when you do them, undermine and undo the work of God to such a great degree that for a a lifetime for a generation, the reproach is not wiped away. And this manner of defrauding through fornication is that great danger. The In Psalms 133, it says, Behold how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. Fornication and defrauding make this impossible. Matthew 5.23 says, If thou bring thy gift to the altar, and there rememberest that thy brother hath aught against thee, leave there thy gift before the altar, and 
and go thy way. First be reconciled to thy brother and then come and offer thy gift. So this that Jesus taught us is that whenever we have divisions and offenses amongst ourselves, God is not interested in our offerings. He's not interested in our worship. Now, I know that flies in the face of the modern America that sells indulgences for a cheap prayer and an occasional church attendance and tells people that if they repeat after me, that they can be absolved from all sins, past, present, and future. No repentance required. No nothing required. No just satisfaction of the justice of a holy God and his demands for mankind. No penance of any kind, which I disagree with. The Bible does not teach penance, but it does teach repentance. And they don't even teach a fake penance. They just say, come as you are, go as you came, pray this little prayer, live like hell, live like the devil, um, live like the devil itself and go to heaven free because you prayed a prayer and you showed up at our church on our hot dog Sunday or whatever else it was. That doesn't mean it's wrong. I'm not condemning those of you that are going to have a hot dog Sunday. I'm just saying it is used wrong and it has been used wrong and it will be used wrong again to rather garnish um, your own church with names of people on your little contact cards that you say that you've led to Christ who are still unregenerate and lost and dead in trespasses and sins. You're just selling indulgences unless you preach the gospel of Jesus Christ in its fullness. That is that man is a sinner. Sinner, Jesus Christ came to save sinners, and except ye repent, ye shall all likewise perish. Some of you out there say you're preaching repentance, you're preaching works. I say to you, you're not preaching your repentance, you're preaching Catholic indulgences, and you're no better than Pope Leo X, Pope Urbane, Perp and Pope Innocent VIII and all the rest of those cheating chicanery, lying, stealing, thieving, wolves in sheep's clothing that have come down the pike. You're no better. You're going to fill your church pews with false converts for the sake of puffing yourself up and bringing in a better tithe. You're just another fan, another form of Tetzel and his crowd. Now, 1 John 2.10 here says that there is none occasion of stumbling in him that walketh in the light. Turn there. 1 John 2.10, he says here, He that saith he is in the light and hateth his brother is in darkness even until now. He that loveth his brother abideth in the light, and there is none occasion of stumbling in him. But he that hateth his brother is in darkness and walketh in darkness and knoweth not whither he goeth, because the darkness hath blinded his eyes. To defraud your brother is to attempt to stumble your brother. You say, well, I'm no, I don't really mean to stumble my brother. I didn't mean to stumble my brother, and on and on and on it goes. You see, this is not limited just to sexual immorality. This also says in any matter that no man go beyond and defraud his brother in any manner. Now, it, John here clearly says that if you have occasion of stumbling brother by inference, that you are walking in darkness, you hate your brother, that you are in darkness even until now. Know not where you go and what you stumble at. Now, go to 1 Corinthians. 8. In 1 Corinthians 8, Paul here tells the church that if they eat meat that is offered to idols, a weaker brother could see them eat that meat and stumble. That's not why we're going here. Um, we're not talking about meat offered to idols here. We're talking about sinning against your brethren, sinning against the church, sinning against the bride that Jesus Christ bought with his blood.
There was a contractor who defrauded his partner. They were both Christians. One of the contractors was attending church, and that contractor um, had had withheld payment. And then whenever they split up, he kept his partner's equipment, some of his partner's equipment, and wouldn't give it to him, and did great damage to his partner in this disagreement that they had. And whenever that partner came and asked the church for help... um, set this thing up according to the word of God and set them to judge that were least esteemed among the church and the church um, reviewed it and there was hard evidence that this first contractor still had all of the partner's stuff. Um, In fact, being one of the witnesses who had worked for that contractor and the church commanded in the name of the Lord Jesus, the contractor that had taken the other man's stuff to give him back his stuff and ask the two to just get on, get along from there and forgive one another, whatever other differences they were after they'd reviewed it. And the first contractor would not do that. He instead, he mocked the church. He called it a monkey trial and he left. And within a couple years, his good name was destroyed. His business was destroyed. He was everybody in the whole community and not because the church spoke bad of him or that other brother, by by the way. On the local news station, there was a whole report about all of these people and all the lawsuits against this contractor for his bad business practices. His name was destroyed, and it was not through the church, and it, God had was the avenger. Just as our text says, God is the avenger of all such. God will not let you get away with defrauding your brethren. He will not allow it. God will avenge. God will stamp it out. He was not going to let it go idly by. God gets involved whenever his children start having trouble between themselves. He doesn't like to. He says, judge yourselves and you need not be judged. So here in 1 Corinthians 8, he says, um, if any man see thee which hast knowledge, sit at meat in the idol's temple, shall not the conscience of him that which is weak be emboldened to eat those things which are offered to, offered to idols and through thy knowledge shall the weak brother perish for whom Christ died. Look what he says in verse 12. But when ye sin so against the brethren and wound their weak conscience, ye sin against Christ. Wherefore, if meat make my brother to offend, I will eat no flesh while the world standeth, lest I make my brother to offend. Now, this attitude is about non-essentials. But Paul is warning the Thessalonican church, do not go beyond and defraud your brother. Defrauding your brother is sinning against your brother directly, not just causing your brother to sin. And so this instance here in the word of God that shows us the deep sin that is committed whenever you do something permissible that causes a brother to sin should illustrate for you the great depth of sin that it is to commit a direct offense against the brethren and to defraud them in any matter. Go to 1 Corinthians 7 and verse 1. So here in 7-1, he speaks of husbands and wives. So we've looked at um, um, immorality within the church. We've looked at the dealing of making a brother to stumble. And now I want to look at between husband and wife. Now concerning the things whereof you wrote unto me, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. Nevertheless, to avoid fornication, let every man have his own wife. That's singular. And let every woman have her own husband also. Singular for you fruit cakes and quacks and perverts out there. Let the husband render unto the wife due benevolence and likewise also the wife unto the husband. That means act like you like each other and touch each other. The wife hath not power 
power of her own body, but the husband. And likewise, also the husband hath not power of his own body, but the wife. And look at this text here. Defraud ye not one the other, except it be with consent for a time that ye may give yourselves to fasting and prayer and come together again that Satan tempt you not for your incontinency. So because you do not engage in the act of marital bliss and instead withhold from your partner physical affection in the marriage bed, he says you are defrauding one another. This will cause the Holy Spirit of God to depart from your home. He will depart from a church where this is being practiced. He will depart from a ministry if you are not loving one another. Now the Bible tells the husband to love the wife and to dwell with her according to knowledge. She is not a sex slave, but the wife is not the ruler of the husband and has no right to withhold her body from him. God will judge the husband if he defrauds the wife and abuses her and abuses the trust that she's put in him, but God will also judge the wife if she abuses the husband by withholding herself from him. Both are true. Both are equally true. This stuff in our nation today where women are filing sexual abuse charges against their own husbands because their husbands approach them and they say non-consensually is hogwash. When you got married, you gave consent. Now there's times where there's actual abuse. I'm not talking about that. Where a man gets into perversion and bondage stuff and, and all the chains of darkness and all the filth that comes in and begins to practice perversion. If that's what's happening in your home, get out of there. Go to your daddy's house. Go get help somewhere. Don't stick around where you're being abused. But having a a marriage relationship is not abuse and cannot be abuse. It is God's intention. It is God's design. And so as much as it is defrauding, get this today, as much as it is defrauding for the preacher to go get a young lady and have an affair with her instead of his wife, it is as much defrauding in a different way for the preacher's wife to withhold herself from him. It's still defrauding. Now, there's a whole different level of problems that come with the first one I mentioned that don't come with the second. But if you do the second, you might end up with the first because the preacher is just a man. And if you defraud him, you will loose the fires of hell in his life. And this is true for everybody. The woman that's defrauded, the fires of hell are loosed in her life. Whenever you defraud somebody, you take the knife of Satan, you take a dart of Satan in your hand that was deflected off of the shield of faith and the breastplate of righteousness and the helmet of salvation and knocked out of the air with the sword of the spirit and you pick up that dart off off the ground, walk around your brother and plunge that dart into their back where they have no armor. When you go beyond and defraud your brother, you do more damage in that one second than Satan can do in 10 years of temptation. 
Because there's no armor in the armor of God on the back of the Christian. We are purposefully by God left vulnerable to one another because he wants us to love one another and work together for his purposes. But if you go beyond and defraud your brother, you take that dart and you slam it into his back. I don't know how many of these great preachers that have fallen could have testified if they would have that back home things were not right at home and that the woman was not submitting and not obeying and was withholding herself to manipulate her husband. Now again, I cannot stress enough at the same time, the husband must dwell with the wife according to knowledge that you may be heirs together of the grace of life and that your prayers be not hindered says the Bible. The husband that is demanding his way and forcing his wife to do things whenever she is hurting and whenever it is, it becomes very very quickly borderline abuse if it is not abuse and will turn into abuse if left unchecked and that becomes a defrauding in and of itself this thing has to be balanced the law here is love that you love the other more than yourself and if this can't be true in the marriage how can it be true in the church house strong Marriages make strong homes. Strong homes make strong families. Strong families make strong churches. When the wife will not submit herself to the husband and the husband will not love the wife and forgive her, you have a train wreck for a church waiting to happen. Because the church is built on homes and families. And the family and the home is built on the union spiritually and physically of the man and his wife. The marriage calls for the man to love his wife even as his own body and to love her in sickness and in health. And there are times in sickness that love just isn't as flashy and flamboyant and romantic as it was in your honeymoon. Sickness is no fun. Sickness can cause great suffering. I can I think of a, a story that I heard growing up of a, and the, it was called Twice Given about a preacher whose wife got, I think, cerebral meningitis on a trip to Israel and she fell on the floor unconscious and he did not get to talk to her cognitively for about the next 20 years. She lay in a bed unable to feed herself, unable to move, unable to talk, eyes shut. He couldn't even tell that she was alive except for her slow breathing and her pulse. That was all he got for 20 years was her slow breathing and her pulse. He did not get to look into her eyes. He did not get to hear her voice. He did not get any other of the benefits of marriage and he stayed with her and he loved her and he took care of her as his own body. And one day a miracle happened and you're going to think this is a lousy miracle if you're carnal. She opened her eyes and said, "Ugh." They said she would never make any noise again. They said she would never open her eyes at all. And she was able to look at him with some basic little tiny bit of childish infantile recognition and make a guttural sound. And he was thrilled and overjoyed and rejoiced and praised God for that great gift from God to hear just noise passing across his wife's vocal cords. And he thanked God for that. And he still didn't get the benefits of marriage. But 
He was faithful to his wife. And that's what God calls you to. So lest any of you would, would take this message and rest it and use it as this kind of sick slavery that men sometimes use the Bible to put women under. I tell you that story to help you to balance it. Now, here in 1 Corinthians 6, um, 1 through 20, he goes on about this um, defrauding in great detail. And this, hap- this deals with the in any way. In 1 Thessalonians 4, 6, that no man go beyond and defraud his brother in any matter, because that the Lord is the avenger of all such. In any matter. In 1 Corinthians 6, 1, dare any of you having a matter against another go to law before the unjust and not before the saints. Dare any of you dare? He's saying, do you literally want to tempt God? Are you trying to just stand and shake your fist in the face of your savior? Dare any of you to do this? Dare you do some great and mighty deed? Dare you go down and face Goliath with just a sling and a stone? Dare you? And he says here, dare any of you having a matter against another go to law before the unjust and not before the saints? Dare you? You're literally, you're really going to try this? Paul says, you're, you're really that insane? You're really that crazy that you're going to take your fellow brother, you're b- a believer in Christ before the court of the lost? He says, do ye not know that the saints shall judge the world? And if the world shall be judged by you, are ye unworthy to judge the smallest matters? Know ye not that we shall judge angels? How much more things that pertain to this life? If then ye have judgments of things pertaining to this life, set them to judge who are least esteemed in the church. I speak to your shame. Is it so that there is not a wise man among you? No, not one that shall be able to judge between his brethren. But brother goeth to law with brother, and that before the unbelievers. Now therefore there is utterly a fault among you, because ye go to law one with another. Why do ye not rather take wrong? Why do ye not rather suffer yourselves to be defrauded? Nay, ye do wrong and defraud fraud and that your brother Paul says if you will not suffer yourself to be defrauded you in turn are defrauding your brother and listen to me today this will kill a revival we pray for God to send revival and then we go and defraud one another no wonder God cannot send revival God is the avenger of all such judgment must begin at the house of God he says know ye not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God be not deceived neither fornicators nor idolaters nor adulterers nor Listen to this, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor abusers of themselves with mankind, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners shall inherit the kingdom of God. He says, and such were some of you, but ye are washed, but ye are sanctified, but ye are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the spirit of our God. All things are lawful unto me, but all things are not expedient. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be brought under the power of any meats for the belly and the belly for meats. But God shall destroy both it and them. Now the body is not for fornication, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. And God hath both raised up the Lord and will also raise up us by his own power. Know ye not that your bodies are the members of Christ? Christ, shall I then take the members of Christ and make them the members of a harlot? God forbid. What? Know ye not that he which is joined to an harlot is one body? For two, saith he, shall be one flesh. But he that is joined unto the Lord is one spirit. Flee fornication. Every sin that a man doeth is without the body, but he that committeth fornication sinneth against his own body. 
What? Know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost which is in you, which ye have of God, and ye are not your own? For ye are bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. Here we have both the individuality and the plurality of the local church. Here he says, you, your body, which is plural body, he says, as singular, the Holy Ghost is in you, plural, which ye have of God and ye, plural, are not your own. For ye, plural, are bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your, plural, body, singular, and in your, plural, body, spirit, or, or your, plural, spirit, singular, which are God's. Do you follow that? Probably not. That was probably really confusing. In your is it your is plural in the Bible. So he's addressing the collective body, the called out assembly, and then he uses body in a singular fashion. That gives a double meaning. First of all, you as an individual have a body. And if you fornicate and sin, you sin against your own body. But further than that, you sin against. Here's the second, the second inference because of the use of you and your and ye. The second inference is you sin against against your church your local body when you fornicate when you defraud when you sin against your brother you sin against your church and if you sin against your church you sin against Christ this is serious how can we defraud one another well we we can defraud with fellowship we can defraud with disfellowship we can fellowship with the wrong people and defraud them. We can disfellowship the wrong people and defraud them. We can have cliques and schisms. We can manipulate people with our attentions or with our church membership. Hey, you're part of my church, so I need some kind of unexpected favor from you that nobody else should get. Working them because we're part of the same church. We can um, abuse the services of a brother by unfair payment or withholding payment or unfair charging. Charging them more. Because how about this? It's the church. So charging premium dollar at the church because you know what the, what's in the bank account and you know they can handle it. Listen, God is an avenger of all such. Malignity... <coughs> Gossip, lying about people, talking about them behind their back, which is also backbiting, slandering them, defrauding one another, is sinning against Christ. He, now here in our text, we're warned against defrauding our brother because the Lord is the avenger of all such. The Lord is the avenger of all such. Go to Hebrews 10.23. Lord, help us. Have mercy on us today. You know, we probably don't even know how many times we do something offensive to other people. And a lot of times, good brothers and sisters in Christ will just overlook it and suffer themselves to be defrauded for the cause of Christ. But sometimes we defraud people without even knowing we defraud them. And sometimes that defrauding, even though they try to look it over, does damage. I think of a story that I heard about a man who was a principal of a school, of a Christian school. And this man, um, this is this is years and years ago that this has happened. But this man was a principal of a Christian school, and that Christian school paid him a very very minimal wage. He was a, a um, 
uh, he was he didn't have any children as he started there and so he and his wife just made it along on what they could and he became increasingly unable to make ends meet and God took care of them and God met their needs but ultimately the man appeared to get bitter over it and it led to led to problems and eventually he left that church And eventually, through other issues that came up, it grew. The problem grew and grew and grew. But the root of the problem was that he felt uncared for and he felt like no, um, he was being abused by the church. And by the way, that's possible that he may have been. You, did you know that if you underpay your school teachers, you are defrauding them? Now, if you don't have if you don't have the funds to do it, and you're pulling together, and the people in the church are doing their best that they can to supply the needs of the ministers, that's one thing. But if you're sitting there um, and you have enough and extra, and the servants of the Lord have nothing, there's defrauding going on, and God will curse it. It's not going to last. That um, a preacher that I heard about that I mentioned earlier, who who had that great temptation in a hotel room. That same preacher, he was at, he was called to preach at a church by that church, and the church they asked him to come preach. He preached there a year, and in his day, they paid him a nickel a month was his salary. Now a nickel a month was just barely enough to get the raw basic. Like, like basically enough potatoes and salt to eat was basically what he got. And he poured his life and his heart out at that church for a year, preaching and praying and sharing the gospel and traveling to other poor churches, many of which, which um, could not give him anything whenever he'd show up and he was single or he could not have sustained even that. And at the end of the year, the church came to him and said, brother, congratulations. You're the first preacher this church has ever voted to keep after one year. And he said, well, brother, congratulations. And the other man said, thank you. And he said, you're the first church. um, um, You're looking at the first preacher to have quit and turned down your offer. And he walked away. And he left the church. And some people would say, he didn't have dedication. He should have stuck on. And I say, fooey. I say, fooey and hooey. That's a bunch of trash. He did the right thing. He walked off. All they were doing was defrauding him. God wasn't going to move there. There's no hope of God moving there. If they're not going to get right with God and take care of their preacher. Now, listen to me. If all they had to eat was potatoes and salt and they were barely making it, that would be different. But such was not the case. Paul talks about there being an equality amongst the believers. He says that your times of abundance should serve the other believers times of lack. That whenever you have much, you should be looking for other believers who have little and helping them. And if you're not doing that, then you're defrauding your brethren. That's how Paul says it ought to be. Christians ought to be helping one another carry forward the gospel of Christ and ought not to be laying up for themselves treasures upon earth. This is not practiced usually. Um, there was recently, my pastor told me that his, he and his wife were reading and they read the verse where it says, every man ought to look on the wealth, wealth of others. And wow, how that isn't practiced today. We kind of um, were almost laughing about it. How that's um, how that most people would say, well, come on. Let's have reality now. That's just Bible. We live in the real world. Hmm. 
Just food for thought there. If you go on and defraud your brother, the Lord is the avenger of all such. Missionaries are often defrauded. They go to the mission field on next to nothing, and they barely make it, and they scrape by. Now, I know you've got your showboaters that roll through, and they make their um, requisite millions, and you say, millions, not really. Yes, millions. They put their money in their um, all their retirement funds, and by the time they retire 40 years later, a lot of them are sitting on a few million. Oh, they need that you say for the retirement age whatever that's not God's way God's way is for us to take care of each other as Christians now I'll also say this they know full well that the church isn't going to take care of them how about all the old missionaries that come off the mission field at 60 years of age and they've given everything they've got their guts are in knots because they've been eating junk food they've been doing everything that they can do to, to preach the gospel they've, their bodies are racked with sicknesses that you know nothing of because you live in nice healthy America and they come back from the mission field and they're cast off and a thing cast away. They have no more use or purpose. They cannot send flashy newsletters. They can't send out glowing reports of souls saved. They can't, do, they can't put your flag up on the wall for the country anymore. You've got to take it down. Nah, we've got to drop them. Instead of dropping those old missionaries, you ought to double their support. You don't think God sees that? You don't think God knows what's going on? You don't think God's offended? you got another thing coming. God knows, and He is the avenger of all such. He is not letting that go by. Those old people that serve in your church their whole lives, and now they're old and they're decrepit, and they can't make it to church on their own, and their family sticks them in a nursing home, and nobody even goes to see them, much less try and bring them to church. God is the avenger of all such. It matters how we treat one another. They will know that we are Christians by our love. Hebrews 10 says here, um, let us hold fast. Verse 23, let us hold fast the profession of our faith without wavering, for he is faithful that promised. And let us consider one another to provoke unto love and to good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some is. That's defrauding. You say you're a Christian and you bug out of church for some stupid reason. You get upset about the carpet. You get upset about the pew. You get upset because the preacher preached against your son's sin. You're daughter's sin and you leave out on the church you are disfellowshipping for a false reason you are a defrauder you are defrauding the brethren you are withholding from the body of Christ your presence and you're a defrauder and God is an avenger of all such he says here as the manner of some is but exhorting one another and so much the more as ye see the day approaching for if we sin willfully after that we have received the knowledge of the truth there remaineth no more sacrifice for sins whoa but a certain fearful looking for of judgment and fiery indignation, which shall devour the adversaries. He that despised Moses' law died without mercy under two or three witnesses of how much sorer punishment. Suppose ye shall he be thought worthy who hath trodden underfoot the Son of God and hath counted the blood of the covenant wherewith he was sanctified an unholy thing and hath done despot unto the spirit of grace. God have mercy on this sorry preacher. <coughs> A brother in the Lord got me a scripture magnet, stuck it on my van while I was in church. So I came out and there's this sticker, this magnet stuck on my car that says, Christ came into the world to save sinners. It's right on the driver door, right where I sit. Do you know what the rest of that verse says? Of whom I am chief. I wonder if he meant something by that. If he did, he was right. 
I really don't think he meant anything by it, but he was right. What a mess I am. How I absolutely lean and depend upon the mercy of God more than possibly anyone knows. How I cry to God for mercy that he would not judge me according to my sin. That he would look at me only through the blood of Christ and have mercy on me and keep me from falling. For I truly am a sinful man. Here he's saying that these that forsake the assembling of themselves together in context are evidencing that they are in line for the total wrath of God. Very likely not even saved at all. He says here, look at what he says. And this ties in with the book of 1 John where he says they went out from us because they were not of us. If they had been of us, they no doubt would have continued with us. But they went out from us that they might be made manifest that they were not of us. It says here, for we know him that has said vengeance belongeth unto me. I will recompense, saith the Lord. And again, the Lord shall judge his people. And in our text, the Lord is the avenger of all such. Here it says, we know him that hath said, vengeance belongeth unto me. I will recompense, saith the Lord. And again, the Lord shall judge his people. Don't you dare come to church having aught against your brother and your brother against you and not do something about it. God will not be part of such a thing other than as the judge and as the avenger. Do you want God to come to your services as an honored guest or as a judge sitting at the bench? Defraud one another and you get the judge. He says here, as we close here today, in the end of our text, 1 Thessalonians 4, 6, as also... As we also have forewarned you and testify. So, and we looked at some of this in our context, but the Thessalonian church was a powerhouse church and an example to all these other churches in the whole area, commended for their love and unity. And Paul and Timothy had warned them before about defrauding one another. So this either happened in the three Sabbath days reasonings and the weekdays of two weeks in between those three Sabbath days that Paul was in Thessalonica in two weeks there. Some of the content that he dealt with them about was defrauding one another or possibly he did. Maybe he didn't mention it then. Then Timothy was charged to preach about it when he went back. Either way, the fact that the apostle Paul would warn this church in that short amount of time as some of the first and most basic instructions that he gave to the church that none of you should go beyond and defraud your brother in any matter should give you strong trembling in your heart at the thought of defrauding your brother. This is the greatest danger to a true church on fire. Defrauding one another grieves the Holy Spirit and quenches the fires of revival. Again, this is primarily applied to sexual misconduct, but it also uh, like fornication and uncleanness and stuff like that. But it got also included um, defrauding in any matter. The in Hebrews chapter 12, we won't go over it all right now. It deals with chastening. So there's a great warning in chapters 10 about chapter 10 of Hebrews about defrauding, um, saying the, that God will judge here in chapter 12. It ends with for our God is a consuming fire and it speaks of the chastening hand of God. It compares Esau and Jacob has many f- fearful things to say to the professing believer who claims to cl- to be a believer, but does not follow Jesus Christ as well as to the true believer who will be chastened by God heavily. Go to 1 Corinthians 5 as we finish this. We have a book on our website, S-T-E-M, and the M stands for ministries, which is spelled out, S-T-E, ministries.com. 
about it's called the unrecognized blessing of church judgment it deals with this um deals with this subject in first corinthians 5 it's actually basically a written sermon on first corinthians 5 um recommend any of you to get it if you can it's it is on there for sale hopefully to cover the costs of printing and shipping and handling and distributing and the work of the gospel if you cannot afford it and you want it you need it and you know that it's something that will help you um shoot us an email and if i can possibly get you one i will send you one free of charge first corinthians 5 says it is reported commonly that there is fornication among you and such fornication is is not so much as named among the gentiles that one should have his father's wife. And ye are puffed up and have not rather mourned that he that hath done this deed might be taken away from among you. For I verily as absent in body but present in spirit have judged already as though I were present concerning him that hath so done this deed. He says in verse 5 to deliver this man to Satan. In verse 11 not to have company with him. And in verse 13 to put away that wicked person. We will not go into that in detail. Again I recommend that other resource if this is something that you... Uh, um, feel would help you. But here in 1 Corinthians 5, God shows us that God's answer for those that would defraud one another in the area of fornication, and if you look at it, it includes extortioners and covetous in there, is to deliver them to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. That's serious. Paul warned the church, do not go beyond and defraud one another. And then in 1 Corinthians 5, he tells us what to do when somebody does it. Turn them over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. God is serious about how you treat your brothers and sisters in Christ. Father, in Jesus' name, I pray that you would help us to take warning and, Lord God, to fear you in a godly fear, in a reverence, a holy fear, as a as his son who loves his father, fears his father with reverence and godly honor lord not an abject servile fear lord god that's stupid and and thoughtless and thinks that you're up there with a hammer ready to beat us over the head because you're not you're merciful you're full of long suffering you're gentle to us you give us so much time you're so gracious to us you warn us so often lord and we fail so often in spite of it and yet lord god you don't bring down the hammer but lord help us to recognize that there are lines that you have drip, you have written in the stone, Father God, you have that you've written in your word that once crossed will bring your wrath and punishment upon us. And we ask you, Lord God, to help us to to fear and to tremble and to flee immorality and to stay away from these lines, Lord God, that are so clearly and starkly put forth in your word as places that, Lord, they're deadlines that can't be crossed without incurring great punishment and great wrath from you. And Lord God, though you are angry with us yet you love us and yet there's still mercy as we see Lord that man in 1 Corinthians was restored in 2 Corinthians after he repented and we thank you for that truth but Lord what reproach it brought and what grief and what heartache and what trouble to the church we pray Lord that we would not be the cause of trouble to our church and Lord that these that hear this message would not be the cause of trouble to theirs but rather a blessing Lord we thank you for your son Jesus Christ who died for us and was buried and rose again the third day that we might be saved and that calls whosoever will to come and drink of the water of life freely in Jesus name amen